When a new employee joins a software company, it is often unclear where that employee should begin. Do they have a mentor? What are they working on? What are the expectations for how fast that employee should be contributing? The early period of employment is often referred to as onboarding. During the onboarding period, an employee will learn the basics of the company that they have just joined. These basics include the work procedures, meeting schedules, expectations, and technical software tools that an employee needs to become productive. A poor onboarding process can slow an employee down, and it can even cause them to quit the company entirely. Conversely, a good onboarding process can accelerate an employee towards rapid contribution within the organization. A scalable onboarding process can be a difference in millions of dollars in productivity per year across the organization. Kristen Gallagher is the founder of Edify, a company that helps organizations define and implement their onboarding process. Kristen joins the show to talk about the ingredients of a successful onboarding process and what she's doing with her company Edify. Kristen Gallagher, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. When a software company is successful, it needs to scale. Every aspect of the company is going to need to grow in this scaling state. Why can this be a painful process for a company? Gosh, I think there are so many reasons that scaling can be painful. One, it, it depends where you're scaling from and where you're scaling to. So if you're a 50-person company and you're going to add another 25 people, you're growing by half. I mean, that's a huge culture shift. Your processes are going to change. The way that you interact with each other is going to change. You know, when you could, you, you used to be able to just go and talk to somebody or Slack someone, you might not be able to do that anymore. You might not actually recognize people. But let's say that you're going from 500 to 900. That's an equally difficult scale. Even adding just two people to a five-person team can be a, a challenging scale. And that's because you're adding more people to the mix and the way that people communicate, the way that they organize information, the way that they process information, all of that's different. And so we have so many tacit challenges that live in our heads. And the, the real sort of key to scaling in my mind is making those tacit things explicit. So that's one of the reasons I think it can be painful. When a company starts to be successful, it's often only two to three people, maybe four or five people when you start to succeed. There's no full-time recruiter. You've got this small team of people and they have to do everything. And just as their customer base is growing and the number of things they have to do within the company is growing, the need for talent has increased. There's probably no full-time recruiter. What is the ideal playbook for scaling the workforce in this kind of circumstance? It's a really good question. I think that you're right. Most of companies don't even get their first HR person until, say, 35, 55 people, if that. Um, and usually then it's even a generalist and not a recruiter. And so the onboarding question kind of gets passed around like hot potato, right? And recruiters don't necessarily have the back-end knowledge to create a good onboarding and scaling system. And, and truth be told, HR doesn't necessarily either. They do a great job generally with onboarding at the corporate level. But what I really care about and what really matters for scaling technical teams and software engineering teams is that functional layer of onboarding. And so from a best practice standpoint, 
what we're really looking at, again, with the, the tacit knowledge, is figuring out what are some of those, the most critical, most crucial pieces of information about how we get work done. What's our engineering philosophy? What's our software development lifecycle like? What are our tool systems and tool sets? How do we actually do our work? That's the most critical stuff. So if you have no documentation, you don't have to worry. I'll, I can yell at you later about it. But what I really want to see is an investment of a couple hours a week, maybe as you are preparing to hire new people in thinking about how do we actually do this work? And let's diagram that out. Even if it's just a photograph of a whiteboard and you share that with the new hire and you walk them through that, that can actually serve as a pretty solid onboarding plan for the first couple of years. What are some common mistakes that companies make during this scaling process? Gosh, creating an onboarding program too late. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, I think, is assuming that other people will figure it out, right? Assuming that the manager will onboard the person properly or assuming that, you know, you set them up with a buddy or um, somebody to do some pair programming with and assuming that they will through osmosis or through conversation or lunch, they will somehow explain everything. And it gets even worse when it's, you know, a distributed team or a fully remote team. Not that those those arrangements are bad, they're actually great, but it makes it harder to get FaceTime to soak up that information through osmosis. So when you make assumptions about how a new hire is going to get information, you start to actually just put in cracks into your foundation of your team, not just for that new person. And so those, I think, are, are some critical errors that happen is, is starting too late and also making assumptions about how the knowledge is going to flow. There are some newer technologies that have come out in the last decade or so that have changed the onboarding process and the scaling process. There's Slack, there's Lever. Lever is a hiring tool for people who don't know. Does technology help solve any of these scalability and onboarding challenges that a company might have? I think it's a yes and, and sometimes a yes but question or answer to that question. I test dozens of tools every year just to maintain my knowledge on them. And there are some really interesting applicant tracking systems like Lever, others, there are great HRISs, HR information systems that can automate some of the onboarding process. And unfortunately, where I see them fall flat is at that technical functional level of onboarding where we're really needing to get into the more technical questions about how work gets done, the tools that you use to get that work done, how we actually handle code, the actual process for, for managing this. And unfortunately, the tools that I've tested, I don't, I don't want to call anybody out by name, but they don't get to that level. And it takes more work for a manager or for a subject matter expert to actually translate their their information in their head out into documentation in those tools than I would like. So I really would like to see some technology that helps us do that. I think that that is the future is, is a tool set that really sits side by side with the manager and the new hire and say a buddy that walks them through their first 90 days or even a year sometimes from a technical sense and doesn't replace a person, but definitely makes it easier for knowledge to be transferred. We should define the term onboarding because when a company starts to scale, it needs to define an onboarding process. People who are listening to this may be unfamiliar with what onboarding is. Could you explain that term onboarding? 
Yeah, onboarding is something I think about in a couple of different layers. So anytime you are bringing on a new hire, whether you have a defined onboarding process or not, you are actually onboarding them. You just might be onboarding them in a way that is uh, what I would call maladaptive to the team or to the new hire. And an onboarding program can look like some pieces of documentation, a template for a 90-day plan, or it can look like a boot camp for a couple of weeks. It can look like a lot of different things. The learning design is the creative part of that. I built onboarding programs that were, you know, iPad scavenger hunts and videos, you know, but I've also built long-term, you know, two to three week boot camps. And so it really can depend on what the culture of the company is and, and what they need and how many people they're hiring. Cause you want to make sure you've got a balance of time spent building the onboarding program and how quickly the information that you put in the onboarding program goes obsolete, right? So if information is changing really rapidly about your product, especially as it does in early stage startups, I actually don't recommend heavy duty learning design in your onboarding program. The other way to think about onboarding is as a three layer cake. So if you imagine a corporate layer, so company layer, let's imagine we're working at software engineering daily company. We've got that onboarding. So anybody who on, you know, comes into our company is going to get a slice of that cake. The second layer is what I think of as departmental, potentially regional, depending on how your company is set up. So there might be a product department onboarding. It might be a marketing department, etc. And then your third layer of cake is your most specific and most important and hopefully tastiest layer, which is your functional onboarding. That's your team onboarding. And depending on the arrangement of a team, you know, a software engineer might have multiple teams. You can have a cross-functional team. You could be on multiple squads. And so there might be a lightweight layer of onboarding that helps you understand the team charter, the project that you're working on, the tool set that you're going to use, all of those sorts of things. So we get more and more specific as we go through that cake. But, you know, let's say you and I onboard into different teams. We both get a, lay, you know, a slice of cake that really makes sense for our job. You use a phrase, everyone's onboarding all the time. What does this phrase mean? Yeah, so it's kind of the, the concept of even if you haven't explicitly made a decision, you still made a decision in your indecision. And the same is true for onboarding. So if let's imagine that you and I just got hired into Software Engineering Daily Company and they didn't have a quote unquote designed onboarding program for us. So maybe nobody really greeted us at the door and nobody really told us about how to prep for lunch. You know, so we, we brought our lunch, but turns out they're going to take us to lunch and nobody really came to tell us, oh, here's your laptop. Here's the way to get into the laptop. Oh, wait, sorry, you're not going to get into some of those pieces of software. That's going to happen tomorrow. And then HR will come and tell you about your benefits at some point. And you and I both end up kind of just sitting at our desks awkwardly for a couple of hours. That's still onboarding. It's just not good onboarding. And so even when we are moving really, really quickly as happens, right? And in all of our companies, it doesn't matter if it's a five person company or a 500 person company, life just moves so quickly these days that you are still, you're still onboarding, even if you haven't created a process for it. And the importance of, of understanding that you are still onboarding, even if you haven't designed it well, is that it's going to have ramifications in how that new hire acclimates to the team, how uh, loyal they feel, honestly, how, how much they want to invest in you as a company and you as a team and you as a manager. And those things can be really detrimental if, if the new hire really doesn't 
attach and acclimate into the team, you, you might lose them at 12 to 18 months, which is the worst time to lose a new hire. It's really not at 90 days or six months. It's when they've spent a year, they've, you've actually spent a ton of money, you've spent a year of salary, a year of benefits, they've used up a lot of time of the existing team members, which is a whole other conversation, you know, the time that it takes for existing team members to help onboard a new hire. So when you don't have a design for your onboarding program, even if it's the most sort of MVP level of onboarding, you are still doing it. It's just not good. My philosophy to onboarding in the past has been throw people into the deep end. Basically, I've got maybe like a little bit of documentation. We've got a product. We've got some code written. And it's kind of figure it out for yourself. You know, you can look at the code, you can look at our issue tracker, you should be able to derive what the most important thing to work on is. What's wrong with that approach? Yeah, I'm going to actually say that it's not the worst thing in the world, but it just depends on the knowledge and the experience and the confidence level of the person that you're hiring and bringing in. And this dovetails uh, kind of interestingly with culture and building a diverse, resilient team as well. But we'll first kind of take the tactical element, which is, you know, the reason that I would recommend that you try to avoid throwing people in the deep end is that things can get broken and assumptions get made about how work happens and the way in which we communicate. And I like to tell people when, when we're trying to suss out what the professional expectations are for software engineers when we build onboarding programs, I ask people to tell me, what do you fire people for? What do you get upset with people for? What makes it so that you don't want to work with them anymore, even though you never communicated that? And it's kind of a harsh set of questions, but it really reveals a lot of the stuff about the ways people work, not just the how they do it, but the way in which work happens, the way in which they code, the way they, they communicate, all of that. And when you throw somebody into the deep end, you sort of neglect that opportunity to communicate the ways that you do these things. And that's so, so it can be just fine to throw somebody in the deep end as long as you couple it with the opportunity to give feedback to the new hire or the opportunity for them to give feedback to you. The other sort of more, I guess, sinister side of that is that when you throw people in the deep end, they often don't have the historical context for why certain technical decisions were made. And then they want to critique those decisions. And those of us who've been at the company for a while, we understand why that happened or why that's built that way. Or, you know, yes, that's legacy, but we're going to change it. And we, we can move past that. But a new hire might not have that, that, that context. And so they want to make decisions or they want to bring things up in meetings and it can slow down the process. And there's a, there's a double-edged sword there too, because you want new eyes on old things, but you also want them to know the time and the place to bring that up. What kinds of tooling do you recommend to have a successful onboarding process? What are the tools that every onboarding experience should include? It's a great question. So for tooling, I always try to make sure that a team is using what they already use. I don't want to introduce new tools if I can help it because 
that requires a behavior change and new patterns of clicking and new patterns of entering information. And the reality is that most teams are straddling Confluence, Jira, Google Docs, Dropbox, all of these tools, Zendesk, you know, they've already got those workflows in place. They may not be perfect workflows, but they are what already exists and there's muscle memory there. So the tooling part is an opportunity to kind of question the process in general, is this working for us as far as using it for other communications, other conversations inside our team and outside of our team? But it's also an opportunity to, to embed onboarding within a workflow that you already know and that already makes sense to you. So for example, I will put onboarding as a workflow in Jira or in Zendex sometimes or in Confluence. And so you don't have to exit a tool to do a good job with onboarding. And I think that's a really critical question for people to ask when you're looking at software that you can buy to do this, which you know sometimes there is a really good use case for that, but ask yourself, are you going to make sure that the change management of actually switching to that tool is gonna happen? Because without training, without support, without motivation and reward, switching onto a new tooling set is really not going to be um, successful for you. And then people will be change fatigued and you'll be out some money. And that's frustrating. As you've said, a new hire is going to have a limited contextual understanding of what is going on inside of a company. And throwing somebody into the deep end, again, there could be insufficient documentation around why a certain past decision has been made, a new hire may gather their own context and be mistaken. How can the company improve the level of context that a new hire has, especially when a company may, you know, may have been around for two or three years, there may be all these institutional practices that are not written down or codified anywhere. How do you give that level of context to a new hire? It's a good question. I The best way that I do it, whenever I come into a new company, is I act like a new hire and I ask the dumbest set of new person questions I could possibly ask. And then I gradually work up to more complicated questions. And even if you don't hire somebody to help you do that, you can actually have one of your team members do that for you by playing that role and just continually asking why. Why do we do this? Why, why is it like that? Um, how did it become like that? Um, the other way to do it and to, to gather up some of that context, especially in a young company, is to think about the people that you would send a new hire to. So all of us have probably been in the situation where we're like, go meet with this person. They'll tell you everything. And then we, we send them over to that meeting. It's an hour long or 90 minutes long. And we hope that somehow they got some critical information from our CTO or from our architect or whatever. And... We just assume that that information actually was delivered well, number one, and that number two, it made sense, and number three, is actionable um, for the new hire, which is a terrible assumption to make because most people, I think, are not always very confident in their teaching ability, and that's what you're doing in that in that 90-minute meeting. You're teaching a new person something. So when you have the... <laughs> the urge to put a new hire with somebody and just sort of lock them in the room together and see what comes up on the on the whiteboard or in conversation. The next time you do that, try number one to batch it. So put a lot of new hires in that conversation. And number two, 
it's great if a manager or somebody else can come and sit in on that conversation and write notes, not just record it, but write notes about the structure of the conversation and what actually happened. And that, that person can then add some more context into those notes. And then you actually have documentation available right there. You describe two strong goals of a company's onboarding strategy. The first goal is increase productivity immediately, and the second is to cut long-term attrition rates. Describe these two goals in more detail. Yeah, so attrition slash retention. So attrition, what we're really talking about here is um, non-functional attrition, meaning when we don't want somebody to leave. They were um, theoretically a valuable contributor, and they left our company. And like I said, that, that typically happens between 12 to 18 months or so of a new hire starting. And a good onboarding program should reduce that number, should turn, you know, reduce that turnover. An industry standard right now is about 15% a year for non-functional turnover, which is a pretty high number wherever you put it, but it is industry standard. But a good onboarding program should help a, a new team member feel comfortable. It should help them feel able to leverage the skills and knowledge that they have, that they came into the job having. It should help them learn how to ask the right questions and learn how to contribute on their own two feet. And once somebody is able to do all of those things, they are more likely to stick with a company. It is also true that people are making the decision about whether to stay or go within their first three to six months. And what happens is they usually sit on it for a while, especially if there's stock involved. So they'll often wait until the first, you know, vesting of some stock, and then they'll go. And oftentimes, the, the reason for going is a mix of I didn't get the right training, I didn't get the right context, the culture's weird, I don't like my manager. So you're mixing some variables in here, but your onboarding program can actually soothe and, and smooth over many of those things. So that's the number one goal. Number two goal is time to productivity. And this is such a slippery one, especially in engineering, but because uh, we're not measuring, you know, we're not looking at how many lines of code did you write or how long did you work on that because those are inaccurate measures of, of engineering productivity. But we are looking at, from a benchmark standpoint, how long does it take an engineer at a certain level, like let's say a junior engineer or a principal engineer, how long does it take that person typically to get to a place where they're really working on their own and they're not asking repetitive questions. And what I have found in my experience is it's usually about nine months and people are always very optimistic. So I will often hear, well, oh, it takes about three months or six months and then I'll go in and actually do uh, pull some data and do interviews and talk to managers and new hires and compare that data. And it actually takes nine to 12 months. And so we, we are optimistic and rosy eyed about how long we think it actually does take to get productive. And your onboarding program should definitely play a key role in bringing that number down as well. So you want somebody to be able to stand on their own two feet, theoretically, uh, you know, metaphorically, in about three months. That's a really good timeline. Um, that's what we all think that we have, but the reality is, is different than that. Long-term attrition. Could you describe how attrition is exhibited at a good company and how attrition would look at a really not-so-good company? Yeah, so attrition in a positive sense can mean that 
a culture is doing a good job of saying, here's what we stand for and values wise, behavior wise, technology wise, and allowing people to opt out of that. That's a positive thing in my mind because nobody wants to waste each other's time. The company doesn't want to waste your time and waste money on you if you're not a good fit for that. And you shouldn't want to waste your time if you're not a good fit for that company. Right. And so that's, that's a functional thing. And if you are turning people over in say three to nine months because of that, that's positive. If you're turning people over at an alarming rate, that's, that's concern, you know, cause for concern. And we should look at that. Another way to think about attrition in a positive sense is that as your company scales, the people who were good for you at 25 people are not going to be the same people who are good for you at 250 people. And I I won't say too much on this because lots of smart people have written about this, but in general, there are kind of startup-y people who are comfortable with risk. They are comfortable with lack of structure. They like volatility. They like ambiguity. And then there are people who are systems people who are a little bit more risk averse um, or they are focused a little bit more on instituting systems. And that can just feel like pouring concrete on people who are startup people. And so that's a culture shift, actually. When the company scales to a point where the systems and the ways of doing business that that company now requires because of the size that they're at or the revenue that they're at or the type of customers that they serve, then it's no longer really about the technology. It's about this, the working environment. And some people, you know, would, would rather just like jump in a lake than have to deal with two layers of management. And the reality is that most companies that scale are, you're going to have two or three layers of management. So having people opt out uh, because of that, I think is really positive. I don't see this happen as much as I would like, but I would really love it if companies operated on the sense of succession plan from the moment you onboard a new hire. Let's just assume that at some point you're going to want a different job. And my job as the manager or the person who's representing the company is actually to help you thrive as long as you can here at this company and then help you find something else where you'll thrive elsewhere. So you don't muck up the culture here because what happens when people stay too long, again, with attrition, if they stay too long and it's toxic, they can ruin the culture of that team. And that's really problematic. And that, that means that other people will leave as well. Interesting. You encourage a class-based onboarding system. What is an onboarding class? Yeah, so you might call it a class, a cohort, a group. This is where you are basically batching new hires. And I think it's always tough for people to want to lean into this at the at first because we always want to hire somebody right now to solve the fire that we have right now. And all of us know deep inside that adding more programmers to something is is not actually going to solve it in the short term. In fact, it's probably going to make it a little bit worse for a while. And so it's hard to give up that ability to hire and onboard somebody immediately because our mentally we think, oh, as soon as I get this person on board, they're going to help me solve this problem. It's going to be great. And the reality is they're just, they can't do that. They can't be productive because they don't have enough context to even help you solve the problem at all. And so by onboarding in cohorts or classes, you, number one, you give people other people to work with and other people to learn from. Number two, you're optimizing for efficiency, right? So earlier we talked about uh, when you send people to go meet with your CTO or your architect or whomever, depending on the size of your company, 
when you send that person, you know, the new person to that subject matter expert, you are basically wasting very expensive time when you send them in a one-off perspective. So from a purely business sense, you're wasting expensive time. From a technical sense, you are putting somebody, that subject matter expert, in a situation where they they might not thrive and it's it's a sort of friction-filled environment for them. And when you batch people and you have a group of two, three, five, maybe 10 new hires together, you are creating efficiencies for the subject matter expert and the business, and you're giving the opportunity for actually recording and, and creating documentation of that knowledge. You've mentioned the buddy system for an organization. Describe what the ideal buddy system would be. Yeah, so the buddy system, I think, is a great one. It's not, it doesn't have to be the same as pair programming, although that can definitely be part of the buddy system. But a buddy is somebody who's not the new hires manager who can basically show them the ropes. You know, when we say something like show you the ropes, what we're really talking about is the unspoken, unwritten cultural language of the, the company or the team or the way that we work. And a buddy is a person who might be, you know, the same job title. Um, they might be just you know, a few months to potentially a few years um, more senior than this person. And they have enough context to share the sort of what's happening in between the lines. So I've seen buddies be extremely effective, but only when they are prepped. So you can't just assign a buddy a week before a new hire shows up and expect the buddy will actually know what to do for that new hire. So you do need to take some time to let the buddy know, here's what I'm hoping you'll do. I want you to take him out to lunch. I want you to check on him on Slack. I want you to ask him these kinds of questions, show them this kind of stuff. So buddies can relieve some of the pressure of onboarding from the manager, which is awesome and really important, but they're not going to be very successful if you don't give them guideposts. You encourage companies to have a policy where a new employee will ship something on day one. What kind of product or feature would be good to have a new hire ship on day one? Gosh, it's a really good thing. I would probably say not a product or a feature. Um, nothing that has to do with uh, customer-facing product because there's a likelihood that it's not going to go well. And that's okay. That's actually part of the process. So go back in your JIRA or in your issue tracker, wherever you are, and pull sort of some of those dusty tech debt things and start assigning those to your new hires. The stuff that you don't get to very frequently, um, the stuff that is not mission critical as much as you can find it, just so that they can actually get into the process. And if you don't have stuff like that, it might behoove you to actually create a, a different sandbox environment to let them play in and actually create some issues for them to work on. Your writing uses Facebook Bootcamp as an example of a good practice. What is Facebook Bootcamp? Well, I can't necessarily say that I know every single thing that happens in Facebook's Bootcamp, but I do like the way that the way that it's laid out from what I understand about it. And I've built similar boot camps, and many companies have similar things like this. And the value of a boot camp style program is that you are putting people in a cohort together, so they do get to learn together, which also means that it decreases the time that they have to go and ask their individual managers those same questions because they're self solving and they're uh, looking for answers together. So that's a really valuable component. 
Um, the other thing that I like about that type of program is that it's, it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't be all education all day. So there should be opportunity for actually listening, learning, um, hearing from other people, hearing from product owners, hearing from project managers, different teams, different squads, but also understanding what's going on with the business and how the customer uses that product and how an engineer should interface with the customer if there's an opportunity for that. But you should mix that learning time, that educational time, with application time. And that's one of the things I do like about the bootcamp model is there's usually a lab opportunity and then right after that lab there's feedback. So you get to actually go through what you just did and talk it through and, and figure out what went wrong. And that is a great way to prepare before setting somebody free after their first week or two. One important tool to have in a toolbox for onboarding is the employee handbook. What should be the process for crafting an employee handbook? Mm, very good question. This is landing more in HR land, which is fine. But your HR team should really, uh, even if it's just one person, should be thinking about both from a, a legal and a risk standpoint, how the company needs to ask employees to behave so that we can live in a, you know, and work in a safe environment, um, in a productive environment, but also so that, you know, we can decrease friction. I'm a big fan of very lightweight employee handbooks. One of my favorites is um, Valve's employee handbook because number one, it's illustrated. I think that's awesome. Two, it really shows the tone. So your employee handbook doesn't have to just be a, a sort of solid, you know, black and white document that's 40 pages long, there, there is going to be some legalese in there. But it can really show employees, like, what, what do we talk like? You know, what do we sound like? What do we, you know, tend to, to look at? How do we operationalize our values and our, our way of being as a company? That's a really interesting way, I think, to engage people in the HR process because I think a lot of times we onboard people into their role. We don't really onboard them into understanding the company as a, a connected unit, right? I often, for a, a while, I was onboarding in a job I had, I was onboarding people, about 10 people every other week. And I would always know when I had engineers and salespeople in the room because number one, they would dress differently. And number two, they would sit on opposite sides of the table and have different you know, perspectives on who was the most important in, in the company. Because you know, engineers in that, that situation would always say like, well, we build the thing. And sales would always say, well, we sell the thing, right? The reality is that you, you can't live without you know, either of them. And your handbook is an opportunity to let people know, you know, here's how we work together. It does not have to be, and I, in my mind, shouldn't be this boring legalese document. And in using that in onboarding is also a, a way of acculturating people. And how should it be used in onboarding? Should, should there be a dedicated, you know, 16 hours of indoctrination where the person reads the, reads the <laughs> <hope> handbook? <laughs> like a person reads the handbook or... Has it read to them? Gosh, I'm debating how sarcastic to be here. <laughs> you know, aside from like locking somebody in a room by themselves with a printed copy of the employee handbook and like an ink pen, which I don't think you should do. <laughs> I really like to see a couple of standard programs that, that everybody at the company, not just engineers, but everybody at the company get gets. And one is about the 
cultural context and the history and the origin story of the company because that's your opportunity to really engage people in the company that they're joining right people want to know that they have joined a company that is doing work that matters whatever that work is that is affecting customers positively they want to know that they want to know that they're going to be able to affect people positively they also want to understand like how did we get here you know what had to happen in order for this company to be where it is today, where I have just joined. So that program or that opportunity is a place to um, talk through all of that information. The second program is a more HR focused program. And I think you can really do a fun experience with this. And this is actually where I mentioned earlier that scavenger hunt concept. I actually had people go physically around the building and find examples of things from the handbook. And so they could put two and two together meaning they've they got they were sent a copy of the handbook to sign ahead of time and then in teams they got to go out and actually see that in action and they could check it off and win prizes for that and so you know you can be as creative as you want to be and as as creative as you have bandwidth to be and i would just really implore you not to have people sitting for more than like 25 minutes at a time just get them up get them moving especially especially if you have people calling in from remote offices because being on an 8 hour zoom call is not it's not awesome <laughs> okay since you brought it up how should these practices of onboarding apply to purely remote teams it's a great question. And I think it's going to become more and more critical as we're seeing teams become more remote or companies just go fully remote and, and not have offices at all. And the, the only change that I, I really suggest to companies is that you break it up over time, that you actually have more space between it. So if you were going to have a boot camp and you were going to put people in sort of educational scenarios plus uh, a lab, then what you're actually doing is sending you know, you, you might send uh, all of your new hires to a webinar or a, you know, a Zoom call or, or what have you in the morning or whatever time zone makes sense. And that's your educational component. And then you send them off, they work on their own, do that lab exercise, and then you bring them back. So you're breaking up the day a little bit and uh, really trying to respect different time zones while that's happening. And the other way that I, I see remote onboarding work really well is the use of tools like Loom and other video recording software so that you can actually walk somebody through what's happening while you are doing it or just after, especially if the time zones don't match up that well. So if somebody's doing one of those labs, you know, trying to actually work through a problem and the person who's going to have to respond to that is on, you know, 12 hour differences, then you can actually have your loom going in the background so that you can share with that person what your process was like, and they can effectively debug your process as a new hire. You founded Edify or Edify EDU. Describe how you work with companies and what your company does. Yeah, Edify, it's a learning design company, and we focus on building technical onboarding programs for software engineering and product teams. And we, gosh, I founded Edify almost five years ago, which is a little crazy <laughs> to, to realize sometimes. And we've, we've built onboarding programs for companies like Elemental and AWS, OpenSky, Suvota, Puppet, all kinds of amazing companies we've gotten the chance to work with. And 
our, our focus is, as we talked about earlier, really trying to make sure that teams are getting up to speed faster in a more humane, dignified way. Because to be honest, it, it really sucks as a new hire to feel left out of the, the conversation and to feel not necessarily socially left out, but technically left out. Like, how, how am I supposed to engage with this? I came here because I wanted to contribute. I, I thought I had great interviews. You know, they seemed to like me. But more often than not, when I go and do interviews with new hires, I find out that this new hire has been sitting basically on their own for weeks. And it's not a good feeling. And that's one of the reasons you lose people, right? It's because they weren't given an opportunity to really use their skills and to ask questions and to deploy knowledge um, and to gather new knowledge. And it's, it's basically wasted money for the company and wasted time for the team. We didn't really talk so much about, you know, the impact to an existing team when a new hire joins, but there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. You are going to impact your team. Productivity will go down on a team level, especially if you're onboarding a lot of people at once, because that team is going to have to absorb the, the cost of helping that new hire get up to speed. And your onboarding program should decrease that challenge as well, should make it a little bit easier for the existing team to do that. And so that's really a passion of ours. And we try to balance that with the fact that things do change in our industry so quickly that while documentation is critical, not everything needs to be documented in in the same way that sort of more long-term or concrete processes do. So we love teaching and, and building capacity within engineering and technical teams to figure out what should be taught, what should be whiteboarded, what should be written down, and how should it be organized to make everybody's lives easier. Why did you start this company? What gave you the inspiration? Well, honestly, I've always been a learning designer. My background is in museology, which basically means learning design in a museum. And so I've always been very curious about how people categorize information, how they use new information. And I kind of didn't realize that I was doing onboarding in all of my different jobs. And I was helping people onboard into a new job or help them, helping them onboard into new information that they wanted to be curious about or, or wanted to understand. And when I was working, I was working at a web development company. So that was my sort of first taste in 2013, 2014 of what it was like for technical people to onboard into a new company. And I just saw how how awful it was, unfortunately, and, you know, started hanging out more at user groups and more at, you know, technical meetups and realizing that everybody had this problem. And so there was something happening, right? Companies are not doing a good job, or they weren't five years ago. And so I realized that I could use my skills to fix that. And Edify, as all companies do, has had different iterations. I, I had all kinds of aspirations when I started the company that I was still going to do museum work and nonprofit education work. And, you know, gradually that all sort of fell away. And we've just really focused on this technical onboarding piece, because I think that this is every, every company is going to become a software company. Every company is sort of already moving in that direction. And we are going to have to figure out how to make this transition in our whole economy work better and, and in a more dignified way. Agreed. What's your long-term vision for the company? Well, to be honest, I actually want to build that software that uh, you and I talked about. And I've been really disappointed in, in the software that I've tested and seen clients use. 
And so I've been sort of brewing that in the background. So my long-term vision is, is to build that. And who knows what the exit strategy for that is. So talking a little bit more detail, what is the kind of software that you want to build and what's your vision for it? Yeah, so I want to build software that sits on top of some of the other software tools that folks are already using in their regular workflows. So it would sit on top of your issue tracker, it would sit on top of your Confluence or your Google Driver, etc. And it would prompt you actually to create onboarding plans with really, really simple questions um, and really, really simple processes. And so it's not an invasive tool that you know you have to sit down for eight hours and actually enter all of your knowledge into it because that's a really challenging way to do it. So basically, I am working on taking my five years of experience, pulling this for, you know, doing this for dozens of companies, that it takes three to six months to, to build out a really great onboarding program for companies. And I think that there's a way to do that in a much shorter time frame. Again, not leaving out people. You still want your managers, you still want your buddies to be engaged. But a tool that really facilitates that process is what I want to build. Very cool. There's a phrase I wanted to ask you about that I've heard a couple of times in various podcasts. The phrase is hire fast and fire fast. What do you think of that that phrase? So I often hear the hire slow, fire fast. Yeah, you hear um, the, all the different permutations of this. But there's different permutations, yeah. I... Oh, I actually, gosh, I don't think you hear. I don't question. think you hear hire slow and fire fast. I think that's the one permutation, or hire slow and fire slow, because you don't hear those. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. You do hear different ones. I mean, the one that I do hear frequently is take your time, basically, with hiring because it is expensive. It's it's pretty. It's a huge investment actually for companies to even hire just the one person. People don't often realize that. I actually I, I built a calculator to help my clients understand the cost of not onboarding, you know, having that sort of onboarding, but not good onboarding. And also the, the investment that that will change that equation for them that will bring that retention and attrition down for them. And it's a very expensive proposition to have a bad onboarding program. And so the relationship, I think, between the, the hiring and the firing is that you, you want to spend your time making sure that you know exactly what you're hiring someone for and that you have the space and capacity to bring them on and, and to really actually share the context. If you're not ready or your company or your team is moving too quickly and you're, you, are, you have no choice but to let somebody just sit there for a while, you should not have hired them. We're not ready to hire them. And so I think being intentional about when you hire people and, and, how quickly you hire them, as long as you can actually share that information and, and provide that context. I think that's critical. But the firing part of it, I don't necessarily know about firing fast for the sake of firing fast. I think it's important to communicate always. It's, it's critical to make sure that people know what expectations they're being held to and that we're not making any assumptions about what either one of us knows or, or expects as a manager and as an employee. And that's another key component of your onboarding program is to basically illuminate all of those assumptions and expectations. Here's what I want you to get done in 30 days. Here's what I want you to get done in 90 days, etc. And if we haven't done that, then tensions will rise and conflict will show up. 
and we don't we won't want to work together anymore and then i'll go to hr and i'll say i need this person to be on a performance improvement plan and by that time i don't want to work with them anyway right so that's not a positive situation and that person is probably not thriving either you know this might not be a good fit for them or this is not the right tech stack for them etc cetera, etc cetera. so you do want to go ahead and and let people opt out quickly if this is not for them and an onboarding program can also do that i see it as a win for my clients when we get that you know turnover rate from you know the 12 to 18 months down to like three to six months where they're like yeah this is not for me you know what i went through this program i'm i'm out that's a success in my mind but i would say that you should not fire fast if you have not communicated those things you should always take an opportunity to see what actually did get communicated what have i shared what have i not shared so that's probably way more information than you want to know about hiring and firing no i think it's, i think it's a really crucial explanation you just gave because you hear both sides of it i mean you hear people that say I let this person linger at the company three months longer than I should have. You know, I hired them, and after two weeks, I knew this person was not going to work out, and I couldn't, you know, bring myself to tear off the Band-Aid. But then you hear the opposite case where somebody will say, you know, I hired this person. At first, I thought they were kind of dense. They couldn't really seem to figure out how things work, but they were so persistent. And then, you know, two weeks in, I thought I was going to have to fire them. And then, like, two months in, I'm like, how I, how did I ever live without this person? You definitely hear both sides of it. But I, I think what you put so eloquently is that when you frame things in, and I think this is like what draws people to KPIs and OKRs, these, these like codified objectives and key results and key performance indicators so that you can, the, the thing about the KPI and OKR system is you sit down and you say, okay, what are my OKRs? What are the like high level goals? And then like you say, what are the KPIs? What are the measurable components that abstract into the goal either being accomplished or falling short of it. And it gives you a quantifiable and uh, qualifiable framework for determining whether somebody is, you know, meeting or falling short of their expectations. And that's really important because otherwise you will feel a sense of guilt when the time comes to sort of like pass judgment on this employee, you know, a month or two in, you know, if you haven't set those OKRs and KPIs or what you know whatever your fra- your framework for success is then your conversation is going to be so much less data driven it's going to be so much more touchy feely and you're going to it's going to be harder to convince yourself you really need to execute this like you know severance situation so you're totally right yeah and and I see just so much of that where nobody's been clear about what the expectations are, right? How can I hold you accountable to something if I didn't tell you what the something was, right? And then, you know, the second layer of that is how do I hold you accountable even if I told you, but I didn't provide you the tools that you need to actually get it done, right? That's where the learning and the onboarding really comes in, right? Not just the saying of the KPIs and the saying of the OKRs, because those are critical, right? Those are your 30-day, 90-day objectives, et cetera. However you build out your onboarding plan, and I do like to see, you know, that's a literal plan, a document that that is crucial, whether it's a, you know, Google template that people use or uh, something on Confluence or what have you. If you haven't explained what those things are, then how can you possibly know 
with certainty, as you say, data-driven, how could you know that they are performing that or not, right? And this is, again, you know, that there's intersection here with, you know, when we go on our gut and only on our gut, we make decisions that are biased, right? And we can sometimes exit employees um, or make it difficult for employees to thrive when they didn't necessarily deserve that. Maybe they, you know, it, it was a slower ramp up time for whatever's going on, but they, let's imagine this happens actually frequently with code school grads where it does take them, you know, two to three months to really figure out just the lay of the land and then another two to three months to really get into the product and, and really understand it. But they can be such amazing team members and they really thrive when you are clear about the expectations and you're clear about what they're getting toward. Because I could poke around all day and not really get anything done if you just told me to get, you know, I hear this a lot, be familiar with the product. I'm doing air quotes here. Like, what does that even mean, be familiar with the product? You know, like, especially if it's a product that has just, you know, three, four different ways that you could possibly use it, right? And so I think clarity in expectations is, is maybe if you don't take anything away from this conversation, it's that. Right. I've been in this situation and I've seen a lot of people in the situation where when you hire somebody initially, there's this, there can be this honeymoon period and you're like, oh, I'm so excited about this person. They're going to do so much. They're going to solve all my problems. And then the honeymoon can wane. And if you haven't set expectations before or during that honeymoon period, it becomes very difficult because then it's like, okay, well, me and the employee both know that things are not going as well as they should be. Do I bring it up and sort of make it explicit that I'm like watching them now and now like they need to be meeting these KPIs and these OKRs and, you know, then they're going to start to feel the sense of pressure and it's going to feel like they're already under performance review. And, and so it's just like this managing this emotional exuberance that comes with a new, new hire is like really important. It's critical. And I think this is also, you know, this conversation is really adjacent to manager development, right? And when, when you just talking about managing that emotional process and that journey, it's about coaching, right? It's about being able to coach with Socratic style questions and, and get somebody to see the logic that they use to solve a problem or the way that they're coming at a system design or you know, what have you. And when you're coaching somebody, they aren't going to feel like they're in a performance management situation, right? And when you wait, when you sit on that issue, then that's when it becomes really awkward, right? It's not awkward when you bring it up the first time. In fact, oftentimes I find that people, people kind of know that something didn't go right. And sometimes they just need a little help figuring out what it was that didn't go right and how they should rectify that situation or a little help talking through some possible situations or or, uh, solutions, different ways to think about it. And that's, that really is a manager's job. And unfortunately I see frequently, you know, these great software engineers who are amazing technical contributors get promoted into management before ever getting support on learning how to coach. So, they do wait. They don't really know how to approach these conflict situations that really are positive conflict, right? Conflict is not all bad. So I, I, you couldn't even, we shouldn't get started on that because I'll keep going forever. <laughs> okay. Final question. 
you know, we, we kind of mentioned this prototypical company earlier on, like it's a company that's maybe four or five or, I don't know, to even 10 or 15 people when they really start to hit a situation where they need to scale and their onboarding process needs to start to be codified. In addition to the onboarding process needing to be codified, these people will need to make the adjustment of becoming leaders. I mean, some of them may just be able to stay as whatever engineers or operations people, but generally as an organization grows, especially if it's growing really rapidly, leadership becomes a function of like, have you been at the company for a while? Do you know enough about the company to become, to kind of like lead people? And you may have people who just kind of like stumble into a leadership position. How does the strategy for these new leaders, how should they formulate such a strategy if, you know, they're not only like at this point being taxed by the rapid scalability of the company, but now their role is evolving as well? Jeff, that is a doozy of the last question. I'm just going to tell you, but it's a good one. So thinking about, you know, how this does happen so frequently where, you know, it kind of, it's kind of like, you know, oh, you've been at the company longest. Okay. You're going to manage that team and you just do grow into it. It's almost like an unspoken thing. You know, it's just like suddenly you have two or three people that you've hired and then then another two or three people that you've hired and suddenly you're a director of a department. And, you know, frequently I actually work with companies on on redesigning their career ladders so that everybody can be at kind of the right level for them. And it's a fascinating thing. And and from a strategy standpoint, again, I I think without having a well-oiled, you know, talent development and HR side of the business, which most of these younger, you know, 10 to 20 person companies just don't have. And it really, it does make sense that they don't have that yet. But without having that, I think the strategy has got to just be about communication. It's got to be that as this, the founder, who's probably the CEO, as that person starts to entrust more and more responsibility down the line and they they can't do it anymore especially i see this happening with with technical founders who are still getting their hands dirty in the product that has to stop right you have to start letting people actually take responsibility for things and come up with their their data-based decisions right and i don't know if i'm really fully answering your question here i might be going on a little bit of a tangent but i think it's it's really about how you empower those new managers to start building out their teams and start deploying the expertise that they do have. But it's also the responsibility of the founding team to start thinking through, well, what support do they need? You know, is there a lightweight, easy way to to provide some support to these new managers? There are some affordable and really valuable things that you can do. You can send people to meet with an executive coach for a relatively you know, small investment. You can send people to management workshops and camps, and those things can be really valuable too. So there's stuff that you can do from a strategic standpoint, even without having a fully built out process for how management actually happens and works. Kristen, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking. You too, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity. 